0: Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale, and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law, and more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, when signing a contract for a new job, most of us are guilty of skimming over the clauses and fine print, and it can come back to bite us. So whether it's taking a redundancy, negotiating a salary, cutting shifts, or even rejecting a request for annual leave – Workers do have rights and I am here to guide you through them with our fantastic workplace law expert, Mia Pantekis. Mia, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, I want to first start about when you're deciding to sign on the dotted line of a job. Can a boss just put whatever they want in a contract? Sure. So, an employer
1: can't just put whatever they want into an employment contract. An employment contract can't undercut your minimum entitlements under the National Employment Standards in the Fair Work Act or any award entitlements or any enterprise agreement entitlements. So those minimum standards need to be complied with and your employment contract can't cut those short.
0: Where can somebody find the Fair Work National Employment Standards? So you can have a look online.
1: The Fair Work Commission website and the Fair Work Ombudsman website have a lot of information about minimum legal entitlements for employees, and those summaries are really easy to navigate. The Fair Work Ombudsman website also contains a list of modern awards and a really handy tool, which allows you to search for the award that might apply
0: to your industry or occupation. How much say do I have in negotiating that contract?
1: So you have a right to negotiate, and if you don't ask, you don't get. That's my first bit of advice (laughs) to anyone who's starting a job. (laughs) It's really important to review your contract. A lot of employees get really carried away at the outset. They're excited. It's all rainbows and lollipops. You're really excited about your new role and you're not really thinking about changes that could occur during the relationship or you're not thinking about things going wrong. But employment's one of your biggest assets and your contract's your insurance policy. So it's really important, one, to review it. In terms of key things I'd be looking out for, if I was advising a client, firstly, whether it describes the position and duties and location of work appropriately. A lot of times contracts that I review have a lot of discretion in relation to those matters and they allow an employer to make a lot of changes without the employee's input. The other really key thing to look at is remuneration clauses. Is your pay properly described and is your pay appropriately reflected in terms of what you've negotiated? So, what you'd be looking at is whether it's described as a base salary or whether it's inclusive of superannuation. That's a really important issue at the moment because there are superannuation increases which are coming into play over the next couple of years. And so if your remuneration is described as a package, then you're going to end up with less pay in your pocket as those increases are implemented I think the other key red flag that I would look out for in an employment contract is the notice period. So you obviously want to build in a notice period that gives you enough of a buffer to find another role. So if you find yourself in a situation where your employment is being terminated, four weeks notice might be too short in terms of the time you need to find alternate employment. So having a look at what's listed in the contract and working out what would be appropriate and what would What you would need in terms of a buffer is something you should certainly look at and negotiate.
0: What would be the sort of upper end of extremes of notice periods that people could be asked to work, or is this a little bit of a piece of string question? Yeah,
1: it sort of depends on your level of seniority. So, at the very senior level, you might see some contracts for CEOs or really senior executives that have a 12 month notice period. At the lower end, sort of somewhere between four weeks to 12 weeks. It just really depends on the nature of the role and
0: your level of seniority. I want to turn from the honeymoon period of signing a new contract to when things have gone badly. Can I just be fired for no reason at all? So That's an interesting question. It
1: depends. If you're an employee who earns less than 158500 wow, per annum. Wow, that's exact. That is an exact figure. It's called the high income threshold. So if you earn less than the high income threshold and you've been employed for six months or more, or your employment is covered by an award or enterprise agreement, then you have unfair dismissal rights. And that's relevant because if an employer doesn't have a valid reason for dismissing you, then you can bring an unfair dismissal claim.
0: So they can't just say things aren't working out here.
1: That's right. They have to have a valid reason related to your conduct or performance and you have to be given notice of that reason and an opportunity to respond and have your response considered before
0: they move to dismiss. If someone wants to challenge an unfair dismissal and the end result of that is like, okay, your dismissal was unfair, do you see many cases where people are like, yeah, I can't wait to get my job back and walk in on Monday morning. And everyone's like, hey, there's that person who we got rid of and then they won and now they're back here. So this
1: might come as a surprise, but the primary remedy in an unfair dismissal claim is reinstatement. And that's getting your job back. So wow. if you prove that your dismissal was unfair, the commission will first look at whether it's appropriate to give you your job back. If trust and confidence is broken down to a point where it would be untenable to restore the employment relationship, yeah. the Commission will then look at awarding compensation. Reinstatement's rare because usually where there has been a dismissal, that trust and confidence has broken down to yeah, a point it's where it's yeah. it's not appropriate to uh, bring the parties back together. But there are a handful of cases each year where reinstatement is ordered, and I have acted for an employee in the past who wanted reinstatement, only reinstatement, and we were able to secure that.
0: What are instantly sackable offences? How so, can I avoid, <laughs> avoid committing these? <laughs> sure. So it's conduct that is
1: serious and willful and creates a risk to health and safety, Um, basically anything that's inconsistent with the continuation of the employment relationship. So to give you some examples, it would include conduct such as theft or fraud or being intoxicated at work, engaging in sexual harassment, those types of really serious
0: behaviours. What does the law say about the maximum hours that I'm allowed to work in any given week? So the Fair Work Act says that the maximum
1: weekly hours for a full-time employee is 38 hours And you can be required to work reasonable additional hours. And if they're not reasonable, then you can refuse. So the concept of what is or isn't reasonable turns on a few factors. Firstly, whether it was notice given of the additional hours, whether overtime will be paid for those hours, whether the considerations to health and safety are given The employee's individual circumstances, such as their family commitments, are taken into account. So you weigh up all those factors and make a call on
0: whether the additional hours which are being required are reasonable in those circumstances. If I am going over my maximum hours a week, would I always be entitled to overtime pay? Not necessarily. If you're covered by an award or an
1: enterprise agreement, then it may provide for overtime or penalty rates, depending on the hours you're being asked to work. If your employment is simply covered by your contract, most contracts will provide an overarching salary which applies to you working 38 hours per week and is intended to also cover the reasonable additional hours.
0: I'm interested in the idea of turning down shifts. Can I just say no to shifts on weekends or evenings? So
1: shift work usually arises in the context of casual employment and it's key to the definition of casual employment that you can either accept or refuse shifts. That is what casual employment is. So the short answer is, yes, you can refuse, whether there can be repercussions. There are protections at law which make it unlawful for an employer to victimise you because you make a complaint in relation to your employment or you exercise a right. So if you reject the shift and you're suddenly never put on the roster again or dismissed or you're given all the really crappy work, then you might have a legal claim and it's worth getting advice.
0: wanted to talk to one idea that will affect so many women throughout their working career and this is about pregnancy discrimination. So first of all, I want to ask if I do a job interview while I'm in the early stages of pregnancy, am I under any obligation to disclose that? You're under no
1: obligation to disclose pregnancy during a job interview. And indeed, if you're getting curly or awkward questions about pregnancy or your carers or family responsibilities, then depending on how those questions are framed and what happens in terms of you being offered the role or not, then there might be a discrimination issue there. So both state and territory discrimination laws make it unlawful for employers to discriminate against employees on the basis of their sex or pregnancy, or the care and family responsibilities. There are also protections for prospective employees as well. So that would cover the recruitment process and what occurs within that process and the questions that are asked.
0: What are some examples of some really horror questions that you've heard of being asked in job interviews that are just way, way out of line?
1: You know, it's not uncommon to hear some horror stories around questions on whether they intend to have more children, whether they really want to be in the workplace and they're dedicated or whether their job really is to be at home and care for children. So some of those stereotypes or biases that some men, maybe some women also carry towards those who are intending to start families um, or have the responsibility and care for young children.
0: It's horrible. I have heard of some examples of people removing wedding rings and things like that during job interviews because they are fearful that they'll get asked questions about their family planning intentions. So it's horrible, but it's also, it's great to know that there are options for people to go to for advice if they feel like they've been in a job interview and they have been discriminated against because of where they are in their life.
1: That's right. So if those questions have been asked and there's a reasonable basis to assert that the reason why someone didn't get the job was because they answered truthfully and those answers didn't suit the employer, uh, then there may be capacity to bring a discrimination claim.
0: How long do you have to be at a job before you are allowed to have parental leave? So you need to have 12-month
1: service with the employer in order to access the entitlement to unpaid parental leave, and that entitlement is for 12 months. And you have a right to ask for a further 12-month extension to that leave and the employer can only refuse that on reasonable business grounds.
0: By law, do jobs have to give paid parental leave and where do dads sit in that?
1: So men can also take unpaid parental leave under the Fair Work Act. In terms of whether they have to provide paid parental leave, Uh No, the minimum entitlement under the Fair Work Act is 12 months of unpaid leave. Most big companies will have a policy which provides for paid parental leave, and that will be both for sort of primary and secondary carers. And the value of that paid parental leave will differ depending on the company. There is the government paid parental leave scheme as well, which can be accessed if you're eligible um, and there are certain criteria you need to meet, and that's 18 weeks pay at the national minimum wage rate.
0: What are some of the conditions that you have to meet to be eligible for that?
1: So you need to have been employed continuously for a certain period of time um, and earn under a certain threshold.
0: If I've gone on parental leave for 12 months and someone has been filling my job on a parental leave cover and they've done a fantastic job and when I come back How can that work in a situation? Like, what happens to me if an employer is like, well, that person's actually done a better job than you have? So, it would be unlawful not to give you
1: your job back if it still exists. At law, you have a return to work guarantee upon ending your parental leave. You are entitled to have your pre-parental leave job back, or if that no longer exists, then the job that's nearest in status and pay. And so they can't just say, well, we want your paid parental leave covered to have your role and you can have this really crappy role that's pay, you know, less and is a demotion. If it still exists, you're entitled to return to it.
0: One issue that I think has probably come up for a lot of businesses and organizations over the past couple of years would be people just accruing a lot of annual leave because no one's really been taking that much time off. If my employer is trying to force me to take holidays at a certain date, and I but I don't have leave or I don't want to take that time off, would I have to accept leave without pay or would I have to be forced to take that time off? Look, if there is an excessive leave accrual, it's
1: not uncommon for employers to tap employees on the shoulder and say, hey, you need to think about taking some leave. Best practice is to have a consultation process with employees and try and get them to take it at a time that suits both the business and the employee, in the absence of there being sort of an agreement, there can be a direction to take annual leave, which you have, as long as that direction is reasonable. And again, the question of reasonable turns on various factors. If you don't have accrued annual leave, unless a modern award applies and provides for a different position, you generally can't be told to take leave that hasn't accrued or to take unpaid leave.
0: If I want to fight for better conditions, but I'm scared that it might jeopardize, so say if I'm thinking of going for a pay rise or I'm asking for a change in my hours for something that might suit me better, so say moving from weekend to weekday shifts or day shifts or something like that, how can someone broach that conversation without feeling that it can jeopardize their role? The first thing I would say is you have rights and protections
1: from retaliation in those circumstances. So, the general protections provisions in the Fair Work Act make it unlawful for an employer to dismiss you or retaliate against you if you make a complaint or inquiry in relation to your employment. So, if you're making complaints about the terms and conditions of your employment, or you're asking for a pay rise or changes to your hours. That would fall within that concept. And if you're victimised because you've made that complaint or inquiry, then that's unlawful. The conversation, I would say, is one that you should be prepared for and have sort of a bit of a business case for to try and ensure that it doesn't escalate into a big dispute with your employer. Having a support person present might also assist if you're feeling anxious about having that conversation, depending on your relationship with your manager or whoever you're intending to speak to about it. You can also put it in writing, or at least if you have had the conversation, I would recommend putting it in writing so there's evidence of what you're asking for so you can protect yourself. My final tip would also be to think about joining a union. They can be really helpful in supporting you through negotiations at work, and often they will represent the collective of workers in trying to negotiate better terms and conditions at work.
0: When it comes to bullying at work, and if someone is being bullied at work, but they feel that things might get even worse for them when they speak up, what should they do in that situation? Always document any complaint. It's difficult in bullying situations
1: because when I meet with clients that have been bullied at work, they describe varying impacts on their health and well-being. and because it is a health and safety issue, they are experiencing a lot of distress anxiety. So the prospect of having to, speak up about that and potentially go through an investigation process or face consequences, even though that may be unlawful, is a daunting task. So if they are to complain, have a look at the policy which the employer has in force about bullying at work and how you make complaints and who you should be making them to. Make that complaint in writing. Find a support person to guide you through that process. Might be a family member, might be the union. If things start to go pear-shaped after making a complaint, then it's worth getting advice because retaliation for making a complaint is unlawful and it's something that, that might be able to be remedied through a legal claim.
0: What are some situations that you've seen that have happened in workplaces that have led someone to your door? So I get a lot of inquiries about bullying and harassment
1: at work It's not uncommon for women who speak out about sexual harassment to be then subjected to victimisation. So I get a lot of queries in that space as well. Equally, unfair dismissal claims are common. So I think the recent statistics from the Fair Work Commission are that there are about 14,000 unfair dismissal claims lodged each year. So... Yeah, they're, they're sort of the key areas where we get inquiries and where clients seek out advice. Is there a definition under law of sexual harassment? There is. So sexual harassment is any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature which a reasonable person would anticipate the
0: victim would feel uh, humiliated or embarrassed or intimidated. Again, the reasonable test comes into it. In a situation of sexual harassment, how can people avoid someone just saying, oh, that was just a joke. So I
1: don't think they can avoid someone's perception that it was just a joke or uh, interpretation that it was just a joke. What I was saying in relation to that is that there have been many cases where the courts and tribunals have held that banter that's of a sexual nature or jokes of a sexual nature can very much be sexual harassment. That type of sexual innuendo in the workplace can be sexual harassment. What's really key to the definition is that it needs to be conduct of a sexual nature. That's very broad, and it needs to be unwelcome. And whether it's unwelcome is a subjective test. And what that means is it's from the perception of the person receiving it and how they felt and whether they felt as though it was unwelcome. So you may tell a joke an inappropriate sexual joke in the workplace. But if the person receiving it feels as though it's unwelcome and they didn't ask for that joke to Mm. be told in their vicinity, then it's likely to be caught by the definition of sexual harassment.
0: And when you say in the vicinity, that also means can it just be something that I've overheard? It doesn't need to be someone saying, hey, Amy, here's this disgusting joke. It can just be if I overhear it happening in a workplace. That's
1: right. And so other examples of that sort of sexually hostile type workplace environment would include explicit posters or pornographic material
0: displayed or distributed around the workplace. Wow. So like disgusting calendars on people's desks and photos and these sorts of things. That's right. And you'd think that
1: probably doesn't happen anymore, but it definitely does. And it's in particular industries that are very male dominated and in mining in particular. Even in 2022? These are still issues that are happening. Absolutely. So sexual harassment is still very prevalent and rife in Australian workplaces. And despite the Me Too movement and shifts in community standards and expectations and a lot of high-profile matters being brought to light and very brave women speaking out,
0: it's still a massive problem in Australian workplaces. So if I were to be sexually harassed at after-work drinks can I count that as a workplace incident? Or what happens if my employer tries to say, well, no, that was after work, that was on your own time? So that is a very common scenario that I come across. The
1: discrimination laws are very broad when it comes to those situations. So an employer can be held liable for conduct or sexual harassment that occurs in connection with the employment. And the concept of what is in connection with employment, as I said, has been interpreted very broadly. So there have been, if there is some nexus to the workplace, that is the drinks were organised by the manager and everyone went to the pub on the Friday afternoon or it was a farewell event or it was the Christmas party or shortly after the Christmas party, then there's probably going to be a sufficient connection to the workplace and an ability to make a complaint that the employer is liable for the sexual harassment that's experienced at those events.
0: When we talk about issues around harassment or even just people's treatment in the workplace, and obviously over the past couple of years, there has been a real reckoning with treatment of people, particularly of women in the workplace. If people are looking back over their time in previous employment and thinking, what happened to me or to someone I know was really not okay, Is there any course of action for them at that point or is there a a time limit by which time you just have to accept that was a terrible job and have to let it go?
1: Yeah, so look, it's worth getting advice. Different claims have different time limits. In sexual harassment matters, the time limit has recently been extended. So the, the time limit is 24 months from when the harassment occurred. So, you need to make a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission within that period. But the commission still has a discretion to accept complaints outside of that 24-month period. Other employment claims have very short deadlines. So, unfair dismissal claims and those victimization type claims that I described, they need to be lodged within 21 days of the dismissal taking effect. Oh, wow. So, that is something that employees don't readily know. And if you miss that 21-day deadline, it's actually quite strict. Trying to lodge a claim after that is extremely difficult. Okay, so not a lot of
0: wriggle room with this one. Correct. I want to ask about social media, which I'm sure is probably a bit of a lawyer's picnic, what happens on social media. Can my boss control what I write or share on social media?
1: There are increasingly clauses being inserted into codes of conduct, which purport to regulate the private lives of employees. So what they do on social media, what they do out of hours, what opinions they express in various forums, etc. So employers are increasingly trying to regulate that behavior. Whether they can discipline you and control what you write on social media Depends on the circumstances. And I feel like that is always a lawyer's answer. But to give you some context, if you post on social media and that post clearly identifies your employer, it brings their reputation into disrepute, it's incompatible with the continuation of your duties, then there may be a sufficient link to them saying, well, that's a form of misconduct and I'm going to discipline you for it or dismiss you for it. If the social media account is on private, doesn't identify your employer, has nothing to do with your work. It's a little more of a gray area as to whether they can take steps to discipline you for it. There have been a lot of high profile cases in this space. Um, Israel Falal is one that comes to mind where he expressed an opinion on social media and was disciplined for that. His argument was that he was expressing a religious view and was being discriminated against for that. The company's view was that, well, we have a code of conduct that says you can't do these things and you're in breach of it. So you can see that tension. Another example was Scott McIntyre, the journalist who tweeted about Anzac Day and was sacked for that. And again, it was that tension between someone's expression of, Um, a political opinion, uh, and then an employer trying to impose their code of conduct on on that behaviour. So it's an area that I see crop up often, particularly in the context of unfair dismissal matters. And it really depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. So some more extreme posts, for example, if you're bullying a colleague on social media, that's probably going... (laughs)
0: That's awful.
1: (laughs) That's probably going to be a sufficient connection to the workplace and grounds for an employer to discipline you. Equally, if you're sending sexually explicit material to a colleague on social media, if don't send nudes to your colleagues. Good that, life for all. That could probably land you in some hot water. What we have seen recently is employees expressing views about COVID, lockdowns, vaccine mandates, oh. policies that are being introduced by employers and You know, it's a really interesting area because there have been some cases dealing with it, but I think we will see a lot of cases coming through the Fair Work Commission dealing with these issues about views being expressed that are potentially incompatible with the view the employer is taking in relation to COVID, lockdowns, vaccine, working from home requirements, and whether, you know, an incompatible view in that respect or a post about those matters is going to be enough to sort of discipline
0: an employee or sack them. With one of the post-COVID questions, can an employer make an employee come back to the office? So there's no
1: general right to work from home. Employers need to provide a safe workplace and as long as they can ensure the health and safety of their employees and they've got proper measures in place to minimise the risk of COVID at the particular time, they can direct you to come back to work. Unless you have an agreed flexible work arrangement in writing with the employer or your contract of employment allows you to work from home. I think it's an issue that each workplace is really trying to navigate at the moment. I think there are a lot of anxieties with workers trying to sort of adjust to that transition back to the office. Consultation is always key. I think, in these situations and if you have specific concerns about returning to the office, that is it's because you have a medical condition and you're more susceptible to COVID and so you think the risk of travelling on transport, et cetera, is going to be detrimental to you, it would be good to articulate those reasons because if you're being refused on those grounds, then you might have a discrimination claim.
0: What can make a workplace deemed unsafe? So the obvious
1: answer to that would be sort of physical hazards, Mm. depending on the type of workplace. But I think what people don't think about when that question is posed is sort of the psychological hazards. So, you know, the presence of bullying and harassment at work, those toxic cultures that can have a really significant impact on someone's health and safety, unreasonable or excessive workloads or hours of work, having tight deadlines and really difficult clients to deal with, they're all sort of triggers that can create a real risk to health and safety and lead to sort of those psychological risks in the workplace.
0: If people have been suffering under those sort of conditions for some time and they haven't documented things along the way, does that basically make it impossible for them to take action for that?
1: Absolutely not. So, it's not uncommon for me to meet with clients who are complaining about situations that have occurred in one on one discussions where there haven't been witnesses or there's no written evidence of the comments that were made to them. That's not a barrier to bringing a claim. If there is written evidence and good record keeping, obviously it makes it easier, but I would still recommend they get advice. And the other tip is write things down keep a journal take a support person to meetings put complaints anything of that nature in writing so you do have those records
0: do you ever have people coming to you who've witnessed bad behavior in the workplace but they're not the primary victim of it so that's less
1: common Some workplaces have started introducing policies with bystander provisions which require employees who witness bad behaviour, whether it's sexual harassment or bullying or other misconduct, they've got a positive obligation to speak up about it even if it's not directed at them. And I think that's a positive move because the victim doesn't always feel up to speaking out and so that's one way of trying to combat that issue and make sure inappropriate behaviours are called out and dealt with. So it's not the ordinary course that a bystander would come and seek advice on behalf of someone else. They will sometimes attend as a support person, but it's
0: not the general approach. With a positive obligation, what happens if an investigation or someone makes a claim and something is done and it does emerge that people did know about it but didn't say anything? What happens to them? Again, depends on the context. If
1: in the context of a sexual harassment matter, it comes to light that sort of senior managers knew and turned a blind eye to it, that could go towards the employer's liability. So it would be pretty clear that the employer and those that it entrusts um, in senior management were not taking reasonable steps to prevent harassment because they were on notice of it and did nothing. As to those individuals, they may be disciplined by the employer depending on what happens, but it will usually turn on the employer's liability and whether they're on the hook for the sexual harassment that the employee encountered.
0: And often that then swings on seniority as well, so it's not going to come back on junior staff or anything like that. Less likely
1: on junior staff it's more a scenario where, you know, you have people in a position of power and control who can do something to alter what's going on and they turn a blind eye to it.
0: If things have turned really bad for someone at a job and they quit and they just want to go and they don't work a notice period, what can happen to them? Can their pay be withheld? Like what what can be done?
1: So many awards provide that if you don't give the minimum period of notice, then an employer can withhold up to a week's pay but that can only be withheld from your wages. So if you're owed other entitlements such as a payout of your of your annual leave or other award entitlements, they can't deduct from those. What is a redundancy? So a redundancy is a situation that's not based on your conduct or performance. It's a situation where your job is no longer required to be done by anyone because of operational
0: reasons. If I get told that I'm being made redundant, but I really, really like my job and I really, really, really don't want to leave my job. What can I do?
1: It's tricky. If it's a genuine redundancy, there's not a lot you can do. But for it to be a genuine redundancy, particularly if you have unfair dismissal rights, they need to be able to show genuinely that the job no longer needs to be performed by anyone, and that's because of operational reasons, they likely need to consult with you about that. So there needs to be a process where they advise you of those changes and what the proposed action is, that is to make your role redundant and invite you to make comments about whether there's any other opportunities that you might be interested in. They also need to make attempts to redeploy you. So if there are other roles that are available that you're skilled for and qualified for, then they need to offer them to you as an alternative to you being made redundant.
0: Well, Mia, thank you so much. I have to admit that I have been guilty in the past of not always reading every part of an employment contract. So all of the lessons that you have imparted today, I think are a great reminder of people to read contracts. Always ask for what you want at the outset and also know that there is support available if you are being treated badly at work. So Mia, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Taccato. Audio production by Mitch Calladine. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.